0: The God of love and peace be with you. Our text for our sermon is Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. Listen to me, you coastlands. Pay attention, you faraway peoples. The Lord called me from the womb. When I was inside my mother, he mentioned my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me a polished arrow. He concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my glory. But I myself said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength and got nothing at all. Yet my verdict is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. But now the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to turn Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, so that I will be honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. The Lord said, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the ones I've kept in Israel. So I will appoint you to be a light for the nations so that my salvation may be known to the end of the earth. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, last Sunday we celebrated the baptism of our Lord. And that is where he was anointed. And God the Father spoke and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, making it clear he was beginning his public ministry as the Savior that would culminate in his death and resurrection. After Jesus was baptized, he went out into the desert led by the Holy Spirit for 40 days where he fasted and the devil tempted him. And Jesus stood up to all the temptations you and I would easily fall into. Then he comes back and every time John the Baptist sees him, he says those wonderful words, which was really the call of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Isaiah, in quite a long section, goes through many different prophecies that he says in Hebrew poetry, which doesn't translate into English, and in today's text, even in a very neat imagery using weapons and everything, in his own ways, he talks about that mission of the servant of the Lord who has come, as we see, to take away the sins of the Lord. So today's sermon theme is, the Lord's servant describes his mission. Now, from here on out, I'm going to preach on my own translation of the Hebrew language. And verse one says, listen to me, you islands, and take heed, you remote people. The Lord has called me from the womb. He has declared my name from my mother's belly. Now, there were islands that weren't too far away from the nation of Israel, but distant people. That would not just include people in what they called Tarshish, which was pretty much the known end of the world. That'd be like Spain today but he was also talking about people distant in time. That would be you and me looking back 2,700 years since the pre-incarnate Christ talked through the prophet Isaiah. And he tells us to pay very close attention. And the first thing he tells us is, the Lord called me from the womb. He declared my name from my mother's belly. Some people think that the that uh, God is talking here about the nation of Israel. And if all he said was the Lord called me from the womb, we'd say "Ah, allegorically because of the imagery he's using. Yeah, we can see that. But then to turn around and and use an even more intimate word. uh, Therefore, he declared my name from my mother's belly. For example, with Jeremiah, he tells the prophet Jeremiah, you know, I had in mind exactly the calling for you when I knit you in your mother's womb. And here we see the pre-incarnate Christ 700 years before the virgin's birth, making it very clear. This is the reason why he's taking on human flesh. And so he would take on human flesh to be our substitute so that he could keep the law actively for us. As I even mentioned, his temptation, although the devil was always coming after him. And so that he could even suffer the punishment you and I deserve for our sins and rise victorious so we see that he took on human flesh to fulfill his human mission. It was the whole point of his taking on that human flesh, the very reason why he was knit in the virgin's womb. So the Lord's servant describes his mission. He took on human flesh to fulfill this mission. And then we're told in verse two, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand and he's made me to be a pointed arrow. He hid me in his quiver. Two different Tool weapons are used, both of them having been hidden. I want to focus on that sword first. And every time I read this, I cannot help but to think well over 700 years later of the Apostle John when he is the last living apostle being given that revelation that we now call the book of Revelation. And we're told in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, the Apostle John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man. He was clothed with a robe that reached to his feet and around his chest he wore a gold sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool or like snow. His eyes were like blazing flames. His feet were like polished bronze being refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand. A sharp two-edged sword was coming out of his mouth. His face was shining as the sun shines in all its brightness." Isaiah describes Jesus as he's hiding his deity so people can immediately tell he's God. John sees Christ after his resurrection where he is no longer hiding his di- deity and he sees it in all its glory. But still, his tongue is described as that sword coming out of his mouth, two-edged. The word of God can be summarized with two messages. The first serves the other. The one message, the one edge of the sword is the law. The law cuts deeply at our hearts. It cuts away our excuses, our entitlements, our thinking we deserve or that we earn salvation because when we are truly shown the law and it shows us that we are not holy, we find ourselves without an excuse before the Holy Lord and our heart is ripped open. It cuts away all of our all of our excuses and that, that makes us think we're in any way entitled to salvation. But then the blood of Christ comes upon us. The good news that he did all the work to save us, that he kept the law perfectly for us, that he suffered every temptation we do, but he never succumbed to them, that he took the punishment for our sins. He gives us faith because the Holy Spirit enters our heart and we receive the blood of Christ so we could see the other edge of the sword Because it cuts our sins away and completely removes them and says, you are now God's child. And it's interesting, the sword that is usually, he says, that he kept in the shadow of his hand, that's kind of hidden as the weapon. You know, you get the bully coming up to approach the kid and he doesn't know the kid's got something that he's going to take that bully out like you wouldn't believe. And then in Hebrew imagery, Hebrew poetry, he imagines it in a different way, in a parallel way. And he talks about an arrow. Now, today you could go to large department stores and buy arrows that people at any time would envy, even though today they're cheap junk. But at this time, it was very hard just to get an arrow with a straight shaft. And if you have one with a straight shaft, in fact, the straighter the shaft, the more accurate your arrow is. And of course, in those days, they weren't the many pointed arrows. They usually were two-sided, just like the edge of a sword. Here we have a deadly accurate arrow. Arrow hidden in the quiver. In this, we have that imagery that in the fullness of time, people kept wondering, is the Savior gonna come? Is the Savior gonna come? And when he comes, he's born in a barn. He's hiding his deity. When he stands before Pilate, or even when he stood before the Sanhedrin, if he let a fraction of his godly glory come through as the apostle John gets to see it in Revelation, the people would have ran in fear. He hides his deity. And in the fullness of time, God the Father says, Now it's time. And that ancient dragon, the devil, who uses his lies, he lies to you and says, it's not a sin, it doesn't matter. And and then when you commit them, he turns around and he goes running to God. And he, he leaves out the fact that he tempted you with the whole thing using your sinful nature. He says, look, that one sinned, that one's going to hell with me. But in the fullness of time, God, the father pulled Jesus out of that quiver and says, it's time to kill this dragon. And what a deadly sharp arrow Christ was. He was the only one that could do that. And the devil is now chained. We are told right before the final return of Christ that the devil will be allowed to run amok for a short period of time. But he's already defeated. The war is over. You have been won for Christ. Christ. And in all of that, we see that tongue in Revelation, that sword, that two-edged sword, that two-sided, deadly, accurate arrow. We see that Jesus Christ is God's ultimate spokesman, whose words kill and give life. That is a summary of the entire Bible. That is a summary of Christ proclaiming as the spokesman for the Trinity the good news of salvation in us. So the Lord's servant describes his mission. He took on human flesh to fulfill this mission and he's God's ultimate spokesman whose words kill and give life. Next we're told, and he said to me, you are my servant, you are Israel. Through you, I shall glorify myself. This is why people might think it's actually talking about the nation of Israel. When God brought the nation of Israel up into a nation in Egypt and then he delivered them from the enslavement that the Egyptians had given them. And Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them. And that covenant was you follow all of these rules, and more of that here in a minute, and I will send the land and the land, I will send rain on the land, and it will flow with milk and honey, and I'll protect you. So that was God's end of the deal. Their end of the deal was they were to follow the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. Of course, the moral law is the Ten Commandments. And, and when they did that, the Gentile nations would say, Wow, there is holiness, there's where salvation is to be found, and it would have drawn them in. Sadly, No generation did this very well. Most of them just utterly and completely broke the covenant. And even when we look at faithful men, outstanding believers like King David, oh, there he is in the age when they didn't have indoor plumbing, so they went to the roof of their house and he had the tallest building, the palace, and he looks over and he sees that very uh, lusty looking uh, Bathsheba who innocently enough is taking a bath. He takes advantage of his position as king and sends for her. And when she sends back the message afterwards, I'm pregnant, he commits murder by the hand of the Amorites against her husband to cover up his adultery. Even David did a pretty bad belly flop. And you and I can do a very bad belly flop at glorifying God, can't we? We constantly sin every day. It's why we need a savior. Even in local congregations, you can have children of the congregation who are brought up having people serve as Sunday school teachers and everything else. And then they get to be adults and church is just too early. Oh, I can't go to the evening services that interferes with this. But I, I, they can also think they're entitled. But the people of the church won't serve me and do the things I want. Never mind the fact that I'm not serving them or helping them either. We do a pretty bad job of glorifying God and the nation of Israel did a pretty bad job of glorifying God. And so Jesus Christ took on human flesh to do this for us. He glorifies God for us. He does it perfectly. Always keeping the law, always showing God's grace, always being the savior. And so the Lord's Lord's servant describes his mission. We see he took on human flesh to fulfill this mission. He's God's ultimate spokesman, those words whose words kill and give life and we see he is the true servant of God who glorifies God. Then we take a really sad turn at verse 4. Verse 4 says, yet I said, I have fruitlessly toiled. I've wasted away my strength on worthlessness and nothingness. But my verdict is with the Lord and my wages are with my God. Jesus had been telling the disciples I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be handed over and I will die for your sins. And on the third day, I will rise. And and right away, Peter chews him out. When One of the times Peter tells, Jesus tells them that. And he has to say, get thee behind me, Satan. And when it comes, it seems the disciples are shocked. They're shocked at his arrest. They were actually surprised to find out he had risen. They had forgotten the whole thing. He's abandoned by the disciples so that even Peter, who so often stands up so boldly, the first to speak out, even Peter denies his Lord before a servant girl. Oh, and that one guy, Judas, who had been shown so much grace to even get to be a disciple, he got to hear grace from God, the Savior's mouth every day, turns around and betrays him. And yet we have to admit, if we put ourselves in the eyes of, of somebody outside of this, it looks like the Christian church has failed miserably because as it gained in popularity and spread, it started teaching more and more false things. It amazes me some of the things that are commonly taught in churches that there are many passages of scripture that glaringly say, no, that's not it. And we embrace each other and say, it's better that we get along rather than that we actually stick to the true word of God And it's exactly how things happened that led to the need for the Reformation when it was glaringly obvious that you earned your salvation instead of what the scripture teaches that God saves you. How can the Savior not sigh and say, ah, it seems so utterly worthless. There as he hangs on the cross, suffering the punishment for our sins, his mother, a couple of women and one disciple. Wouldn't it seem so utterly worthless? Yet yeah, he says those words, but my verdict is with the Lord, and the wages, my wages are with my God. When he cries out it's finished, he means all the work of salvation is done. And then he says, last word from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And on good Sunday and on Sunday morning, God the Father. God, the son himself and God, the Holy Spirit, all rose, God, the son from the tomb, showing that he had completed all the work for our salvation. The Holy Spirit would enter people's hearts and give them faith to trust in that message. And God, the father would have planned all things for us to be there to encounter that word. It seems like it was all in vain. And too many people today just look back and say, he was a nice philosopher with the message, can't we all get along? No, his message was, I am the one who saves you. I am the one who does all the work for your salvation. And it's not in vain. It was not in vain with you, for you are hearing the word of God and the Holy Spirit works through it. And so the Lord's servant describes his mission. He took on human flesh to fulfill his mission. He's God's ultimate spokesman whose words kill and give life. He is the true servant that glorifies God and his labor is not in vain. You are the proof of that. Next, we're told... But now the Lord has spoken, the Lord who formed me from my mother's womb to be his servant in order to bring back Jacob to him again. And Israel will be gathered to him and I will be honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has been my strength. And he said, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant with the purpose of raising up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles in order to be my salvation as far as the ends of the earth. For men like Daniel, who will be hauled off into exile 150 years, uh, roughly after Isaiah gives the words of this prophecy, how comforting it would be for a faithful Israelite to hear the Savior still coming. We may have abandoned him, but for those who he has preserved in the faith, he's coming back. But he wasn't just coming for those who were descendants of Abraham, the, the, the Israelites. He says, it's too small a thing for that. I'm also gonna make you a savior for the Gentiles. And here we are, hearing the word of God. It says that he is, we're told, and I will be honored in the eyes of the Lord. The greatest honor that is given to the Lord is when we trust in him for our salvation. And when God brings you to faith, he unites you to the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we become the individual members as the apostle Paul explains in the first epistle to the Corinthians chapter 12. We become the bride of Christ as is described in Ephesians chapter 5. And so we see there that he redeems his people. And when it talks about that in order to to be my salvation, the Hebrew word used there is the same Hebrew word where we get the name Yahshua, which transliterated into Greek would be Iesus or Jesus See, that imagery in that word is when you have walls crushing you in. Things are getting narrower and narrower and you can't save yourself. You're in the trap. So God came and pulled us out. He redeemed us. He didn't pay the price to the devil. Because to be redeemed means to be bought back out of slavery. He paid it to his own holiness. This is the point of his mission. This is why he lived for us. This is why he died to remove our sins. He redeems his people. And so, as John the Baptist said those beautiful words that we celebrate this Sunday, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's admit it, that's really the call of a Christian. First, when we're unbelievers, to know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then, once we know that, to proclaim it. And so, Isaiah describes the Lord's mission. We see the Lord's servant describing his mission through the prophet Isaiah. He took on human flesh to fulfill this mission, he's God's ultimate spokesman, whose words kill and give life. He is the servant that glorifies God. His labor is not in vain and he redeems his people. That means you and I are redeemed for we are his people. Amen. Now may the Lord our God be with us just as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us or abandon us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways. Amen.